Good evening. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us tonight. I'm excited to have so many of you here for the special sphere conversation on religious freedom, Islam, and civil discourse. Really excited about the topic tonight and particularly excited to see so many wonderful friends of sphere joining us for the conversation this evening. I think we're in for a real treat. Uh, just a couple of quick housekeeping items while we get started. Uh, as a reminder, like always with all Sphere events, please make sure that your name in the, as it shows up there in the participants list is your name. That way we can send out professional development certificates afterwards. Uh, also, uh, as usual, Sphere events are presented in the spirit of engaging in and encouraging civil discourse. I wanna make sure to uh, welcome everyone tonight, encourage you all to as much as possible, jump in that chat, share your questions, engage in the conversation, but do so in a way that really promotes that underlying idea of civil discourse and respectful engagement with your peers and with the speakers tonight. Uh, tonight's conversation is a fantastic one. I'm Alan Carey, I'm your Director of Sphere Education Initiatives at the Cato Institute. I'm joined by one of my colleagues here at the Cato Institute, Mustafa Akul, and I think we're gonna have a fantastic conversation. We're gonna talk a little bit uh, to begin with about some key issues to get sort of a grounding in the topic and some of the lay of the land and then we'll be taking Q&A from the audience for the balance of the conversation tonight. So let me begin by introducing my colleague, Mustafa Akul, is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, where he focuses on the intersection of public policy, Islam, and modernity. Since 2013, he's also been a frequent opinion writer for the New York Times, covering politics and religion in the Muslim world. He's the author of Reopening Muslim Minds, A Return to Reason, Freedom, and Tolerance, published in 2021. Why, as a Muslim, I Defend Liberty, also published in 2021, The Islamic Jesus, How the King of the Jews Became a Prophet of the Muslims, 2017, and Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty, from 2011. The Thinking Muslim, a popular podcast, defined uh, Akul as probably the most notable Muslim modernist and reformer. In July 2021, Prospect Magazine in the United Kingdom also listed him among the world's top 50 thinkers. Uh, please all join me in welcoming Mustafa to the conversation this evening. Uh, Mustafa, I wanted to begin, I think, with a little bit of your bio that I left out, but I think is a, a fantastic introduction to uh, why you and this conversation. I wonder if you might uh, tell the group a little bit more about yourself, particularly uh, the time you were arrested for defending religious liberty. Thank you so much, Ellen, uh, first of all, for this very generous introduction. And thanks to all our friends who are joining us tonight from all across the US, as I can see, even from Africa and Philippines, I see people typing messages and uh, thank you. Um, and I think this fear initiative is great and I'm happy to be a part of it. Now, what you're asking me is a story that I tell in the introduction chapter of my recent major book, you know, Reopening Muslim Minds. And uh, yeah, it's, it is about religious freedom. So let me try to you know, summarize that a little bit. This is, a, this is something that happened to me in 2017, September. And at the time I was not yet uh, at the Cato Institute. I was then a visiting scholar at Wellesley College, Massachusetts. And, uh, and I to work on Islam and human rights basically. And um, I got an invitation to visit Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, which is the other end of the planet, exactly, when you look at from Massachusetts, and to uh, give a few lectures about Islam and human rights and freedom and religious freedom. 
And um, I got this invitation because Malaysia has been a hub for me in the past 10 years. My book, my first international book, Islam Without Extremes, was published in the Malay language. I got interviews. So I've been already there four times before that event. So they, they're the Islamic Renaissance Front, which are my friends in Malaysia, basically. Uh, and they want, they're kind of advocating human rights from an Islamic point of view. They said, we organize wonderful lectures for you. It will be crowded. Please come. You know, you can't miss this. I said, okay, I'll go to Malaysia again. And I took this very long flight and I went to Kuala Lumpur. It's a wonderful place. I mean, if you want to visit, it's, it's a great place to be. Um, but this time it wasn't so great for me because what happened was I gave one lecture, uh, then a second one was on a very sensitive topic, the topic of apostasy, mm -hmm. which is, of course, renouncing your religion publicly and choosing another religion. So if you're a Muslim and if you say now I'm a Christian or an atheist or a California Buddhist, you know, whatever you go for, then you will be an apostate from Islam, right? And uh, what should we do to apostates? Like, and well, I think in a free society, we shouldn't do anything to them. It's their choice, it's their religious freedom. So that's what I believe in. But uh, some Islamic authorities don't think that way because they think apostasy is a crime punishable by death. Uh, that is the law in Saudi Arabia, in Iran. Uh, certainly, I'm sure it will be the law in Afghanistan. I don't know if they passed it or not, but that's certainly what they believe in. Not all Muslim-majority countries, for sure, but about a dozen Muslim-majority countries uh, where you have the Sharia, that is Islamic law in the legal uh, code, in the penal code, you have apostasy as a crime punishable by death. Now, my topic was about this. And in Malaysia, Malaysians are proudly moderate, so they're not giving the death penalty to apostates, but they're sending, sending them to rehabilitation centers, uh, which is kind of prison for six months. And I said, well, uh, this public lecture, I don't think apostates should be executed, jailed, or even sent to rehabilitation centers. I said they should be left free with their conscience. And I made some Islamic arguments. I re reminded a very important Quranic verse. Uh, I'm sure all Muslims are familiar with this. And if you ask any Muslim about religious freedom, they may tell this verse to you, which is in the Surah Baqarah, the chapter, second chapter of the Quran. And it reads, La ikraha which means, there is no compulsion in religion. It's right there in the Quran, and it's become the actually motto of liberal-minded Muslims in the past century or, or so. Um, but it's a contested issue. So Malaysians are writing the words a little bit differently. So it reads in their translation, there is no compulsion in religion only while you are entering Islam. Because they believe you, are, you will not force you to become Muslim if you're not, but once you're Muslim, you can't leave, right? That's apostasy. Uh, Malaysian liberals joke about it. They say it's like Hotel California, right? You can always check in, but never check out and leave. And okay. it kind of shows my age. I mean, probably not most people remember. <laughs> Some people may remember that song. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, so I criticize this. And from an Islamic point of view, and I refer to Islamic scholars, really prestigious scholars like Rashid Ghanoushi of Tunisia, which has reformist arguments because ultimately this was not in the this is not in the Quran. This is in medieval jurisprudence, which is the interpretation of Sharia by medieval scholars in medieval conditions. And at that time, actually, apostasy also sounded like treason. If you leave us, what do you do? You join the enemy. 
So they had this kind of military logic that if you leave us, you're joining the other camps. So we will punish you for that right away. And, and by the way, the Byzantine and Sassanid empires, which were just next to Muslim empires, had the same laws at the time. So I said, this is a historical baggage. Maybe it was understandable in the medieval era, but there's no point in this and we should let this go. And at the end, I said, well, listen, the bottom line here is religion is a matter of conscience. I mean, it's, it's, it's a matter of sincere belief. You cannot force to become religious. You can make them hypocrites, which we see a lot actually in, in, in Saudi Arabia, Iran or societies like that. Uh, religion is not something you can police. That was my punchline. And uh, I was leaving and people applauded and, you know, the audience was uh, leaving. And then five serious men walked in and they said, are you Mustafa Akil? I said, yes. And they said, did you say religion cannot be policed? I said, yes. They said, good, we are the religion police. <laughs> so Malaysia has religion police forces. And I was warned about that actually by my hosts, but I forgot that detail anyway. So apparently they were already there waiting to see what happened and what, what I did, you know, alarm them. And so they came in, they asked a few questions that night and actually they let me go. So that was a silver line. But next day I woke up and uh, I, in Kuala Lumpur, I learned that they issued, they called me to police headquarters to be questioned by a prosecutor. Uh, my host said, just leave the country. You have a flight tonight, just go there. And I did that. But at the airport, I gave my passport and I was hoping to go to the lounge and get some sparkling water. Uh, they stopped me <laughs> because they issued, issued an arrest order for me all across the country. So uh, I was arrested there and then the religious police came and they said I violated the law which bans teaching religion without permission from the state, which means I should go to jail for two years at least and uh, be charged for some with some uh, fee, uh, some financial penalty. And, uh, I was taken to a cell and, you know, I was locked up that night and I didn't know what was going to happen. So it was not a very good night, honestly. And uh, luckily I was like, oh, thanks to some high level diplomacy. I, I tell in the book, like my father knows Turkey's former president who knows the Sultan of Malaysia. So there has been phone calls and that helped me get out. Uh, but, but when I left there, I sat down and wrote a book, of, uh, sorry, an article about this for the New York Times. I called my editor right away and they said, yeah, write about this, please. And I made one point. I said, this is a discussion that Christians had. <laughs> I mean, when you read John Locke's letter concerning toleration, when you read Roger Williams, who's you know, one of the pioneers of freedom in the United States, the founder of Rhode Island, these are exactly the issues that were, they were speaking about. I mean, should you punish heretics? Should you force religion? Should you coerce people to be from the right sect or, or not? And it took a long time for Christians to figure that out. And because all our religious traditions were developed at a time that people didn't have the same sense of religious freedom we have today. But Christians also, people like Locke, went back and you know found some bases in their religious traditions to make the argument. And my case for religious freedom based on the Quranic verse, la ikrahafidi, no compulsion on religion, was one such example. And uh, what I do actually with my books is that actually to go back to scholarship about these issues, because I'm not the only one working on these issues. There's actually quite a few liberal-minded reformist scholars since, since the 19th century, but they write thick books that only five people read and they're hard to understand. So what I do is to just get those ideas and make them more accessible and 
more uh, hopefully inspiring so that everybody can understand and so on and so forth. So that's what I do when I advocate religious freedom in the Muslim world to go back to these thorny issues in Islamic law, the Sharia, that's the legal tradition in Islam. Uh, and there are, I mean, it's not that everything there is negative, but there are some problems. And I work on those problems, especially because I believe that religion is pure and sincere when it is based on freedom and not coercion. Mustafa, I've got to say, very excited that you did not end up locked up in prison and so was able to, able to come back. Uh, but talking about apostasy, I think that's a, a great way to segue to uh, the next topic I wanted to dig into. And that's to talk a little bit about, as you started to mention, some of the, the earlier historical Christian wrestling with some of these ideas, right? In the uh, in the Enlightenment, you, you sort of have the um, Reformation, and then you have the wars of religion in Europe, and you have a lot of these, uh, well, very similar, very brutal, very terrible wars and fights for hundreds of years. Uh, out of that springs a conversation in the Enlightenment about a wide variety of ideas, uh, liberalism more broadly, but buried within that is this notion of religious freedom. Now, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about the origin yeah. of those ideas there and how, how some of these fit more broadly in the, the liberal mm -hmm. project. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, uh, we owe religion to what we call liberalism in the very basic and broad sense today. The idea that people should have rights and governments should protect those rights and governments should not force them to be Catholics or Protestants or Anglicans or Puritans and or Muslims or Mormons and you know whatever and it took a really long time to develop that idea because uh, religious people throughout history thought that this is the truth and of course the government should uphold the truth and punish the people who speak against the truth so this was this was a norm for many centuries and ultimately going through all the terrible results of this course of worldview led Christianity some Christians to develop what we call liberalism today. I mean, I was really fascinated when I read John Locke some 15 years ago, maybe the first time. I said, oh my God, he's speaking about, about our issues. <laughs> like, because he wrote a, a letter concerning toleration and he wrote that in the 17th century, which was the worst time of Christianity probably, because that was right after the Protestant Reformation Catholics and Protestants were persecuting each other. There were the 30 years war, which devastated Europe and Catholics and Protestant, you know, kings and princes fighting against each other. There were massacres. Uh, heretics were being burnt at the stake alive. And, at, and by the way, at that time, actually the Islamic world was more lenient. That's one interesting thing. Uh, because when Christianity was in this very coercive state, Islam had this, since the very beginning, had the actually toleration toward Jews and Christians, and, and which was later extended to uh, Hindus and Buddhists. It wasn't egalitarian. So Muslims had more rights and they were the supreme rulers and Christians and Jews were tolerated as second class citizens. So it wasn't perfect. But for that time, it was actually a good deal. I mean, compared to the alternatives. And that's why repeatedly Jews in Europe fled to the Islamic world. Uh, for example, Jews were persecuted in Spain uh, at the hands of the Spanish Inquisition and Spanish kings and uh, queen. In, uh, during the time of Columbus, you know, when Columbus set sail to US, not US, but America, let's say, would be US, uh, Jews and Muslims were fleeing Spain and Jews were forced to become Catholics. I mean, they were given the 
choice of for, forced conversion or death. And, and they fled to the Ottoman Empire. And my hometown, Istanbul, has a Jewish community that came there. I mean, what I'm saying is that actually Islam at that time was relatively more tolerant. And uh, you see this in the writings of some of the early Enlightenment thinkers. For example, John Bowden, who was a French philosopher, he says, the great emperor of the Turks permitteth every man to live according to his conscience. And again, it wasn't super ideal. It wasn't egalitarian. There were problems. Uh, still, there were apostasy laws and everything. But the fact that there were churches and mosques and synagogues in Istanbul, in Constantinople at the time, was quite liberal. What happened is, uh, thanks to people like John Locke, Pierre Bale in France, or uh, I mean Thomas Jefferson in the U.S. I mean the whole idea of separation church and state, which developed over time. You know, civil rights. Of course, there were racism problem in America. That was a separate huge problem and, and injustice. Uh, but ultimately, the idea of equal rights for everybody thrived in liberal societies in the West. Still, with a lot of turmoil and you know we have seen nazism and fascism evil things in western history too but what happened in islam is that the same evolution did not fully take place mm -hmm. so that's why there are still religious authorities who says well we tolerate jews and christians actually but not equal citizens right well the world has changed now it's like saying uh, we had slavery but it wasn't too bad you know well no you should abolish slavery right i mean the world has come to a different place what happened i believe is that this the human rights standards in the liberal west um because you know nazism was west too let's just see the, the complexity there but in the liberal west in america in in europe and ultimately liberal democracies really went forward dramatically and we owe that to liberalism classical liberalism uh, and uh, what happened is that the same doctrinal evolution took place here and there, but didn't go as forward. And for worse, some groups emerged in the 20th century in the Islamic world, which were actually more oppressive than the Ottoman Empire. And these, these were the most fundamentalists. And they also realized, I mean, the most rigid interpretation of Islam is known as Wahhabism. It's very intolerant. And uh, it's, it's the dominant creed in Saudi Arabia. And in the 20th century, they realized they're sitting on the world's greatest oil reserves. And they thought this God gave this money to them so they can evangelize their true faith. So this most rigid faith of... So what, what I'm saying is that it is wrong to compare Islam and Christianity by looking into different eras. Right? I mean, we are in, the, in a troubling era in Islam today where, where these troubling interpretations are unfortunately out there. But if you compare these two societies or two civilizations a few centuries ago, you would think that actually Islamic civilization is a bit more tolerant. That's why Jews kept fleeing. Which means, I think, what we need in Islam is what I call a John Lockean step forward to make sure that we establish the idea of limited governments and human rights and religious freedom. And we deal with the religious obstacles or political obstacles, of course, uh, to, towards that ideal. A lot, a lot in there to unpack, and I want to come back to a few of the pieces you talked about, particularly uh, the trajectory of the um, 
the Muslim world over the last several centuries. But before we get there, I want to spend just a little bit more time on this idea of religious freedom and toleration. If we, we take sort of a Lockean definition of toleration, something along the lines of the individual freedom to worship and behave according to the dictates of their conscience without suffering repercussions from the state, right? So not a deprivation of their liberties or limitation of their civil rights. They get to practice their religion as they will. Why is that so important? That is from what we saw either in earlier areas of uh, eras of Christianity or where we see it missing today. Why is it so important to have that element of religious liberty? Well, first of all, let me say that uh, I respect Locke and love Locke, but even Locke wasn't super liberal. I mean, he was, yeah, he was a little bit skeptical about Catholics. You know, he was not very open to atheists. So he, he was trying to make the Protestants, all Protestants, acceptable. He, I mean, I think he developed over time. But the thing is, he opened the way. Basically, he insists. Actually, the, one of the greatest transformations, Locke, was that uh, kings don't have divine rights to rule, Right. So God has given rights not to kings that they rule over us. No, God gave rights to human beings. For him, it was just men. I mean, not women didn't have equal. But the thing is, he opened the path that really developed over time and turned into that, the idea of natural rights and human rights and equality for everybody. And, and the government, and the, what is the role of government? I mean, why, why does a state exist? I mean, if you ask that question to the Taliban today, well, the state exists to uphold the Sharia and punish the enemies of Islam and glorify Islam, and they will say that. But of course, it will be the Taliban's Islam that they are imposing. Uh, oh, if you go to Saudi Arabia, it will be the Saudi Islam, where the Saudi king has divine rights, by the way, to, or the prince now, the crown prince. And in Iran, it's the Ayatollah. So, I mean, everybody has their own religious interpretation, and they, they make the state a tool to advance that interpretation which of course serves themselves. So all these different theocratic groups are dominating. And of course, not whole Muslim world is like that. There are secular states in the Muslim world are there too, but it's complicated. I think Locke's idea, which became classical liberalism is crucial because it said, well, we're here bringing, we're, we're defining the function of the state in a very limited sense. The state is here to protect your life, to protect your property, to protect life, liberty, and property, right? I mean, life, liberty, and it became pursuit of happiness too, in the words of Thomas Jefferson. So the government's function is to protect you as a human being, no matter who you are. I mean, whether you're a Hindu or an atheist or whether you're gay or you're straight, again, these things came later. I mean, homosexuality wasn't tolerated until England until 1960s. So, but it was a path and, and a path that evolved. And I think... Uh, we still need to perfect it. And there are still a lot of complications about, um, of course, how do you balance religious freedom sometimes with freedom of expression? And those issues are being discussed in Western societies. But I think there is a good evolution, a good progress that has been accomplished, which we should, which we should protect so that it becomes an example, right? And I think uh, in, in the Muslim world too, there are many examples. I mean, Pakistan's founding was actually based on this idea. I mean, when you look into the, founder of Pakistan, Muhammad Jinnah, he says, it's not the job of the government whether you go to a mosque or a temple, Hindu temple. So he was inspired by these liberal ideas. But what happened in Pakistan is that the groups who are a bit like the Taliban, hardcore Islamists, they growingly became more dominant and they imposed blasphemy laws, which 
uh, it's another part of the problem here. I mean, almost every month somebody gets into jail, gets death sentence, or even killed in the streets for allegedly committing some blasphemous act. Uh, so I think the liberal accomplishment is uh, huge, I think, in human history. And it's rare at a time when people killed each other for religion. Then also ideology or na nationalism or race or other, other problems too. To establish a government whose job is to protect people's rights and not to dictate them how they will live, um, that's rare. And I think it's a good thing. <laughs> We're, I think that's a, that's a critical point. We, for those of us who have had the, had the pleasure of being able to grow up in the United States, to grow up in a, a circumstance and an environment where, generally speaking, religious toleration is, is fairly broad, it's easy to miss some of the contours and the consequences of when it's, it's not there. And you've started to talk about this a little bit, but I'd love to turn our attention more to the contemporary Muslim world uh, and talk a little bit about how they went from being sort of ahead of the game when it came to thinking about toleration, when it came to be thinking about some of the components of religious freedom to, in some unfortunate ways, uh, embodying in parts of the world some of the worst elements of uh, repression and limitations upon individual rights and among mm -hmm. them, religious freedom. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, and first, let me add one more thing, what you said. I mean, it is really a blessing to live in a free society and you don't notice it unless you really go through the alternative. Religious freedom is like that. Freedom of speech is like that, too. I mean, I'll, I tell my American friends, like, you can now tweet against the president, whoever he is, Biden, Trump, or whoever is this, and you don't fear that the police will be at your door in a couple of hours to detain you for uh, offending the great leader or something like that, right? Well, that happens. I mean, in my country, in Turkey, unfortunately, it's come to that level right now, the limitations on free speech. So it's, it's, it's rare to have that sort of freedom and it's, it's precious. Now, speaking of the Muslim world, what happened is that, well, there's one thing we should add to the scene and that's Western colonialism. Mm -hmm. And that really complicated the picture more. I mean, we, we had some bigoted or rigid interpretations of Islam. We, were, we had them and they were there and they're still there. And also Western colonial, European colonialism in particular, I mean, the colonialization of the Middle East by France, uh, Britain, even Italy, that made Muslim societies quite reactionary. So any idea that comes from the West was also seen as a colonial intrusion and everything was trashed out. So that was one political problem. But then there is this religious idea that, I mean, uh, this is written by our great scholars, imams, 10 centuries ago, apostasy, apostasy is a crime, blasphemy is a crime. Women should be forced to cover their head in this way, and they have to be coerced to do so. These, these are the teachings. So you have these, this whole literature. And the thing is, I'm certainly not against a woman wearing a very conservative dress code by her own choice. So that's why I sometimes criticize France or some some illiberal secularists, as I call in Europe, that who doesn't want people allow people to wear a headscarf and be a, get a public job or go to a university, for example. But uh, people can choose conservative lifestyles. But if you coerce that, which is the case, if you impose that, uh, th then you create uh, oppression, you create human misery, which is unfortunately uh, the norm in, in about a, a dozen, at least, Muslim-majority societies today. I'll also tell you, though, that when we speak of the Muslim world today, of course, it has complex problems and not everything is tied to religion too. I mean, for example, Kazakhstan is on the news in the past few weeks, if you have seen, there are, there are big protests against the government and the dictator of Kazakhstan called 
his buddy Putin, you know, to save him, <laughs> and Putin sent his army to, you know, uh, crack down on protests. Well, is Kazakhstan an Islamic theocracy? Is that the problem? No, it's a kleptocracy, uh, uh, which is very much modeled on the Soviet system of one party, one great leader, and so on and so forth. Because, for example, Central Asia has a lot of Sovietic background so that is so that's part of the muslim world too but the problem there isn't always religious so when we speak about the muslim world we, we should not forget that there are issues of tribalism nationalism authoritarian governments that are just authoritarian and they want to steal and you know uh, they are corrupt so there are those problems as well so not everything directly tied to religious issues but my work is especially on the religious issues because i think uh, the doctrine religious doctrine is important and sometimes if you have a religious doctrine that's troubling, uh, dictators can make use of them. Sometimes they can use that to empower themselves, obey the ruler. Their teachings about obeying the ruler written in the medieval era. Oh, that's me. So you should obey me. So that you get that sort of teaching in Saudi Arabia or in the Gulf. Uh, or they can say, and of course, then one more thing is that then there are terrorist groups, which is even beyond the pale. So, I mean, the groups like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, they're a big problem, but actually they're quite marginal. But what I'm speaking about is the more oppressive, intolerant, illiberal attitude, which is even beyond that. So that, that is the mainstream in, in Saudi Arabia. So it's really a complex scene. I published a report uh, with the Cato Institute a few, like a year ago, Freedom in the Muslim World. That actually shows you a spectrum of Muslim societies. Some Muslim societies are quite free, actually, like Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Albania, they're in Eastern, Southeastern Europe. Uh, but if you look at uh, some other ones, there's there are gross violations of human freedom, of course, and then that is somehow tied to certain interpretations of religion. Mustafa, the the last question that I wanted to ask now, and then I wanted to start to turn to some of the the questions from our audience today. You and I have talked a little bit about this idea of uh, two common points of view about Islam and the Muslim world that you think are are both misleading. Right. So they they have some elements of truth in them, but generally you look at them as saying they miss the mark in some important ways. Can you share what those two common points of view are and, and why they're not quite an accurate way of thinking about the situation? Well, I mean, that's something I also say uh, I yeah, briefly note in uh, the introduction chapter of the book, Reopening Muslim Minds. Uh, in the West, I, I see two different lines of narrative or two different kind of two choirs, if you will. And uh, one is what we call Islamophobic or anti-Muslim line. That is quite alarmist. And that line points to real problems in the Muslim world. There is a Taliban, there is a Saudi monarchy, there is Iranian theocracy, there are these problems, there are terrorist groups, yes. Uh, but then it's, it just extended to almost every other Muslim, sees every Muslim as a threat and sees Muslim immigration as something that destabilizes Western societies are troubling. So it's kind of channeling really a very negative view about Islam. And it doesn't, uh, of course, remember that Christianity had similar problems just a few centuries ago. Um, this line is, I think, unfair for a few reasons. First of all, Islamic tradition is quite complex and the troubling groups out there are also balanced by quite moderate and progressive groups too. So there's a war of ideas really going on in the Muslim world. Second, uh, majority of Muslims, especially living in Western societies, are not into these oppressive 
uh, teachings. I mean, they might be socially conservative here and there, but especially Muslims in America are quite integrated. They're actually happy to be Americans. Some of them came to America because they escaped from oppression in the name of Islam or some of or the other regimes. So they actually appreciate the fact that they found freedom here. And it is important that uh, the Western society welcomes and integrates them and they developed a successful Muslimhood in, in the West. So other Muslims can get an idea, say that, oh, you know what? You don't need a theocracy to be a good Muslim. You just need a free country. That's, <laughs> that's all what you need. Uh, actually, I sometimes say that uh, there's one country in the world where all interpretations of Islam, Sunni, Shia, Wahhabi, Salafi, uh, Ahmadi, live together in peace without any coercion and some, and that's America because America, all, so many Muslims came to America and they're generally happy to be American. Again, they may be socially conservative, they may be this and that, but uh, so this line, the Islamophobic line kind of sees Islam and Muslims in a dark picture light, which, or dark prism, which is unfair and exaggerated. The other line though is, which says, huh, we have no problems. It's just all bigotry and, and misunderstandings. Well, no, it's not that simple. We have problems. We have imams who will say, yeah, of course, you know, gay people should be executed or yes, of course, apostates should be killed. We have people like that in sermons here and there. And, and, and they are relying on certain texts or like women should always obey the husband. Otherwise, the angels will curse the woman or something like that. So there are those texts and teachings. We have to deal with them. So that's why I, I disagree with Islamophobes. And I think that's very destructive and wrong. I also don't agree with this rosy picture that there's no problem. And it's just Western bias. Well, it's, it's more complicated than that. And that's why, you know, I'm writing these books. <laughs> To, to, to put these issues on, I think, hopefully in a uh, fair uh, perspective. Well, I wanted to, to turn our attention now to some of the questions we've got, and we've had some great ones so far. And I do want to encourage all the people participating tonight to add even more. We've got plenty of time to get to all of the questions that you've got. Uh, but one that I received that I wanted to share with you, Mustafa, has a little bit to do with the story you shared at the beginning about your experience. And then I think what fits in with the, the broader scope of the title of this conversation. Uh, so we think a little bit about uh, what happened to you in Malaysia, right? So uh, giving a talk about Islam, right? The criminalization of that kind of behavior, that sort of prohibition on speech about those kinds of topics can be particularly a challenge. What do you see as the relationship between free speech or civil discourse on one hand and preserving the benefits of religious liberty on the other? What happened to me in Malaysia? I actually had good food. I, I forgot to mention that before the arrest. So they have really great cuisine. So if you go there, don't miss that. Um, but uh, what happened to me in Malaysia is, of course, I mean, the thing is, I'm not an apostate, but even by their definition, I'm a Muslim and, you know, nobody blames me from, I mean, ISIS will see me probably as apostate, but that is beyond the pale. But um, they were not attacking me because I'm an apostate. They were attacking me because I was speaking about a thorny issue in Islam with a perspective that is different than theirs. So they were actually attacking my freedom of speech. Uh, and freedom of speech is crucial because we have certain problems in the religious tradition. Uh, and certain groups use these certain doctrinaires, teachings. Much of the stuff is not in the Quran, but medieval interpretations, narrations, you know, a lot of, lot of huge body of literature there. Um, and 
and if you're a hateful person, you know, you can find those things and you can use them. This happens. So there is a thing. The question is, if we cannot question these things, we cannot heal the problem and we cannot bring change. That's why actually freedom of speech is crucial here. Um, I forgot to mention that they, after uh, arresting me, they um, let me go. I mean, 18 hours of detention, it's not too bad compared to what people go through. But they banned my book. <laughs> so I heard the Malaysian actually high court, you know, it went all the way to high court. They banned my book. Um, and they said it's not suitable to the norms of Malaysia. What is not suitable? The idea that there should not be a religious police is not suitable. I, I get that. Uh, but of course, at Cato Institute, we put the Malay uh, edition of the book free for download. And I think thousands of people have downloaded it in the past five years. So uh, thanks to internet, you know, there, there are no clear borders. But what these groups are trying to do, of course, is to intimidate different ideas, present us, us being, let's say, liberal reformers as CIA agents and Zionist mouthpieces or some kind of a part of a conspiracy that we're doing this to please the West. Whereas I say, well, I was writing these in Turkey. They don't, you don't let me stay in Turkey. Otherwise I would be, I mean, that's why I came to US. I'm not saying these things because I, I came to US during Cato or some other institution. I mean, this, this is what I really believe in, but there is that kind of intimidation. And once you don't have free speech, indeed, you can't begin change. And I think uh, preserving free speech is in any society, in any medium, in any faculty, in any intellectual environment, it's crucial because if you say certain ideas should be silenced because they're wrong, they could be religiously wrong, they could be ideologically wrong, they could be wrong for national pride and, and, and that kind of thing. Uh, then the thing is, who, who says that? Well, this authority says that. How do we know that that authority right is in the first place? I mean, you just put yourself in a basically ideological cocoon and you stop developing. And, and actually, uh, I have a book, you showed actually why as a Muslim might defend liberty. Uh, thank you so much. Yes, and, and it's freely downloadable at libertarianism.org, by the way. I have a chapter there about free speech and I, I say, we Muslims are generally proud of the medieval Islamic accomplishment. Uh, because at a time when a thousand years ago, I mean, Muslims had the best scientists in the world and uh, mathematics or geometry was developed by Muslims or optics by more than anybody else. That's why you have uh, words in the Arab English language, like algorithm comes from Al-Kharazmi. So he was a Muslim scientist. So there's this golden age, much romanticized, but partly true, golden age of Islam that Muslims were really pioneers in uh, philosophy, science, medicine, architecture. And I say, what was the secret of that? Uh, well, the, some people will say the secret was piety. We were pious, so God blessed us with victory and so on and so forth. I say, no, the secret was actually Islamic world was more open. They could study Aristotle and Plato without burning their books, you know, which was the case happening in Europe at the time. So uh, I show examples of discussion, theologi free theological discussions between Muslims and Christians at the Caliph's court in Baghdad in, in the Abbasid Empire, which wouldn't take place today in, in some TVs in Saudi Arabia. They would certainly go and execute the Christian who says something negative about Islam. So uh, th there, there's not one era in human history where things went good, but generally things go better for any civilization where they have civilized rules, right? 
They could be property rights. It could be a free exchange. It could be free exchange of ideas. And I think the brightness of medieval Islam, when Europe was not very bright, uh, was partly because it was more dynamic and it was more open and, and freedom of speech was the key issue there. One of the, the th a couple of things I want to quick note before getting to the next question for our participants, particularly those of you who are alumni of Sphere Summit, we talk about this idea of the foundations of civic culture as being part of what it is that Sphere exists to promote. When we do so, part of that is what we mean are these ideas of things like religious liberty and toleration and free speech and the kinds of open liberal institutions, uh, liberal in the sense of free, that enable people to flourish, that enable progress along these lines. It's particularly important that we have these. Uh, not only is it good for the individual as such, it's good for society as a whole. Uh, and then I did also want to note that as a follow-up to this, once the recording of the conversation is done, we'll send out the information uh, and the links to these books, uh, both the, the ones that are downloadable from Mustafa, but also the article that he mentioned earlier. Mustafa, I want to turn to a question we got earlier in the conversation from uh, one of our alumni, Jonathan Cohen. He asked, does state-backed Sharia prevent Islamic liberalization to some extent? He notes that American Muslims rapidly adjust to living in a pluralistic society. What's, uh, what, is the, uh, what is the relationship there? As we think about, um, about some of the challenges presented by state-backed Sharia and some of the uh, similar forms and challenges of where uh, religion and the state overlap, uh, how does that impede some of that kind of liberalization? Yeah. That's a very good question, actually. And the emphasis on state, state-backed Sharia, it is. I mean, actually it does, of course, prevent liberalization. And um, let me say a few words about what the Sharia is in the first place, of course. I mean, uh, I mean, it's also turned into a scary word. People think that Sharia will come to Kansas or Oklahoma. I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, that, that, you know, people are bringing Sharia everywhere and not every Muslim is trying to bring it around. But Sharia is, to understand Sharia, you should look into Judaism and look into Halakha. Uh, you know, Judaism had this law of Halakha called, you know, which tells you how to dress and what to eat and you don't eat pork and their dietary laws. And, and actually Sharia is very much inspired by that. We have similar practices with the Jews, that's why. I mean, Muslims don't eat pork and boys are circumcised and everything. So there are communal and personal practices. Um, now, in the Halakha, there is also penal code, blasphemy and apostasy laws too. You can see that clearly in the Old Testament. But Jews don't have a halakhic state in the past 2,000 years. So those penal code has become, elements of the penal code has become obsolete. And the Jewish people became accustomed to using Halakha as not a state law, but a communal law you know, that's voluntarily practiced. Uh, especially more so in America because, you know, it became more individualistic and so on and so forth. And I think that's a good evolution. Uh, now, in Islam, the Sharia kept being the state law for centuries. So there has been states that imposed it. And, 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 and that's why the Taliban, you know, they, they captured Afghanistan in August. What did they say? They say, we're bringing Sharia. So what, what does Sharia tell them? Of course, what you understand from Sharia is something else, but According to Taliban's very strict interpretation of Sharia, again, not most Muslims do not agree with this, but they think music, for example, is haram. That's religiously banned. Okay. Now, my answer would be, you think music is not good? Fine. Don't listen to it. Right. Okay. I mean, it's your choice. But no, they want to ban music to everybody. 
because they want to make Sharia the law of the land. So it is indeed the issue of being based with the state and how do we disentangle law from the state? Is it meant to be for the state in the first place? So these are huge questions. There's an article I published in the Prospect magazine of the UK a few months ago, which was about particularly on this issue, how do we disentangle uh, Sharia from the state? It's, it is, of course, a huge issue because from the very beginning in Islam, you had state and so on. So was Sharia connected. But we're coming to a crisis because of this, because every Islamic group which captures power and territory wants to impose its own Sharia. Uh, now, what is happening, the question about American Muslims is that American Muslims are living in peace and prosperity and happiness because they don't have a state-backed Sharia, right? I mean, for them, if they follow Sharia, that's about how they dress and eat and fast in Ramadan, that's fine. Or how you, uh, I mean, certain communal practices, how you maybe divide inheritance in your family. So this is very much voluntary, and that's what it should be. Uh, that's why I think uh, the Muslim experience in the West is precious, that other Muslims see that you don't need an Islamic state to be living according to the dictates of your religious tradition, and you have religious, all you need is religious freedom. So that, that example is also there, not just America. I mean, Bosnia too, for example, even in Turkey, which has political problems, I think it's still Sharia is not a law of the land, which is good, you know, it shouldn't be. So there are secular experiences which are much more brighter than the so-called Islamic experiences out there. I want to take uh, another question. Uh, this one was one of the, the first ones we got from Mark Robinson. And it, I think it's, it fits neatly with what we've just been talking about, but looking at it from the, the converse. Uh, and that is a, a common sort of accusation in the Christian world and in the, the Muslim world that a system of religious liberty is actually at fault for a kind of relativism and decay in society. So as Mark asks it, uh, he says, how do you respond to a bishop who asserted to me that religious liberty in the United States has led to relativism, where religion no longer really matters? Or more generally, I will put the question, it's often argued uh, by individuals who argue in favor of a religious combination with the state that it is necessary to maintain morality. It's necessary mm -hmm. to maintain Christianity or Islam in a sense that is practical, or as some would even go so far as to say, for the, for the sake of the souls of those in those societies, it must be the case that the mm -hmm. state enforces this. Uh, mm -hmm. How would you respond? Well, I mean, the, well, it should be relative for the state itself, I think, because if, I mean, this argument, um, comes from the people called integralists, right? They're from the Christian tradition. They think actually the state should uphold religion. And actually that's coming up in the US lately. I mean, some of the new integralists are saying, oh no, no, the society, American society has become too bad and we should go back and I don't know, impose a Sabbath or I mean, they have some ideas about how to bring religion back to the public square through the state. So, which I think is wrong, but now what I would say against that argument is this, when you insist religion actually should be there uh, somehow the state should advance religion you are probably assuming that the state will advance your religion right and just be be worried that you might be on the other side of the divide right? it could be not your religion right i mean what if somebody who thinks you're a heretic captures that power and, and thing and you think actually you're pushed you should push, be pushed a lot i don't think people will be burned at the stake in the us at some time but 
imagine U.S. is heading towards this integralist mood with, I mean, what about Mormons? What about others? I mean, some groups that are on the border of Christianity or not. I mean, it's it, the people who make this argument are generally confident that the state will be theirs. And I think uh, that's a um, bargain and, and, and or like a, uh, you might not be that lucky. That's first thing. Secondly, will you be actually lucky if the state brings uh, religion to the public state uh, square by its own coercive mechanisms? Now, that might actually be counterproductive in the sense that whatever the state does, it is inevitably cold, coercive, and it will inevitably push people back. And in other words, what you think will make society more pious can make the society actually be more reactionary to religion, which is exactly what is happening in Iran and Saudi Arabia, very extreme cases. But uh, one thing I've written a lot about is that Iran is the number one country in the world today that is producing the highest number of apostates from Islam. Although they're obsessed with punishing apostates, they're creating so many apostates. I mean, in other words, people are leaving Iran and becoming atheists or Christian and so on and so forth, precisely because Iran is a religious republic. People who are angry at the government turn and ultimately get angry at the state as well. So I don't think that uh, whatever you bring through the government in, name of, in the name of religion ultimately helps religion itself. Um, now, of course, when you don't have that and when you bring the government secular, the society, can the society become nihilistic, uh, believing in no value? Now, that is a problem. But then it's your duty as a religious community to do better. I mean, you don't need the government for that. Maybe you need to inspire people better. Maybe you should be, maybe there are problems in your own religious message or you're in your religious institution. Maybe some of the people in your religious community are pushing people away by, you know, being hypocritical or doing terrible things and using religion as a justification. So I think you don't need power really to advance religion. And the, the, the more you try to advance it, uh, you could it could work against you in in ways that you couldn't imagine. So, Mustafa, the the last question that I want to ask of you tonight, before wrapping things up for the conversation, comes from uh, Ashok Panikar, and I'm going to read his whole comments. But I think I want to to shorten the the question of uh, what do you see as hopeful going forward. So, to share. Uh, Ashok's question. He says, I've worked extensively with Muslims and Muslim groups in India and elsewhere since 2007. Something that struck me is that after years of engagement, dialogue, and inquiry, even the most open-minded Muslim participant tells me, Ashok, I understand what you are saying, but I cannot go back to my community and tell them that. They will not even be willing to hear me. Uh, so I guess to, to take his comment and, and reframe it, uh, what can be done? What is hopeful for advancing and maintaining where it exists now, religious freedom in society. I mean, what I uh, said to hear that for sure, um, you can maybe try sharing my books, maybe they will read that one, then it could help, I'm, I'm joking, but uh, change is not easy. And, and when I say John Locke, don't think that John Locke wrote a letter concerning toleration in a few years Europe became, uh, you know, First Amendment heaven or something like that. I mean, people thought Locke was crazy that, you know, his ideas were too eccentric and uh, 
of course you should not allow heresy and a society will disintegrate. So there were so many reactions there. And it took a lot of time, a lot of time and, and even trials and, and, and mistakes. And people actually ultimately came to liberal ideas because they exhausted all the bad alternatives. So I believe Muslim world is going through a period like that, which is not going to, so I'm not going to tell you that in two years, we'll see a very liberal, you know, uh, world out there in, in Afghanistan or Taliban or Pakistan. It's not going to happen. But, but there are dynamics of change. In my country, Turkey, for example, there's a interesting wave of secularization because our, our president, Tayyip Erdogan, who is um, kind of a synthesis between Putin and, you know, some other populist leaders, some populist leaders out there, He's using so much religion for his political propaganda, and he, th he wants the society be more religious. He actually triggered the greatest wave of secularization and deism in Turkish society because people are angry at him and are saying, like, we're fed up with this re religious narrative and its usage for power and nepotism and corruption and so on and so forth. I think Iran is, uh, is an Islamic Republic which is one of the most secular societies actually in the Middle East. And at some point, I think the regime will collapse and you'll have a quite post-Islamist uh, Iran. Uh, the Arab Spring has, has seen a lot of turmoil, but there are people taking lessons out of that. And there is demand for more openness in Arab society, sometimes political, sometimes just social. But uh, it's not easy, but I think change will come. And what I try to do is to inject ideas into this big landscape uh, where people who are interested in ideas of freedom and, and toleration can uh, reconcile them uh, with their religious tradition. So it's a long battle, but I don't think it's hopeless. And uh, already has, and let's not forget that already change has taken place. I mean, 150 years ago, there was slavery in the world, including the Muslim world. Now it's history, right? I mean, there are still racism and other problems, but institutionally racism is eradicated in the face of the earth. And uh, in, in the Muslim world too. I mean, in the Ottoman Empire too, there was racism, but uh, sorry, uh, slavery. Slavery was eradicated. So change does happen. Uh, we have to work for it. And uh, please send me your uh, the context of your friends in India, uh, Ashok, if I can say. Uh, at least I'll be happy to send a few articles and maybe chat with them a little bit if I can be helpful. Mustafa, thank you so much for a fantastic conversation this evening. Really appreciated all the thoughts you've shared. I think timely, thoughtful, and engaging in sort of to the core of what it is that we're trying to advance thank the sphere. So, thank, thank you, you so, so much, Eldon. And I apologize there. I think other questions I failed to respond. We didn't have enough time. But please uh, feel free to email me. You can share my email. Uh, I'll be happy to write back. Uh, also, my books are available. Uh, Why I Defend Liberty is right there, downloadable, and uh, other articles uh, can be shared as well. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for your interest, and uh, thanks, Alan, for organizing this. Absolutely. Uh, very briefly, I want to encourage all of you, if you've not yet, please do take a look and apply for Sphere Summit this summer. You can find out more information on it on our website, cato.org slash sphere. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you all with us. We'll be sending out a recording of this evening's conversation, as well as all the resources that Mustafa shares uh, for you very soon. Uh, thank you all so much. Enjoy the rest of your evening. It's been a pleasure to be here with you all. Thank you. Thank you again. Thanks. Bye-bye.